Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Last week I spoke about three primary texts of Kabbalistic literature that are the vehicle for the revelation of the divine in the world through the medium of Jewish mystical thinking. And we looked at Sefi Yetzirah and the summary there was basically that that's talking about this thing called the Ten Sefirot, but we don't know what they are. Then along comes the Bahir and the Bahir starts saying, well, we can understand that the divine has attributes. We could even give them a number that the ten sefirot that the Sefi Yetzirah is talking about are ten divine attributes, you know, kindness, wisdom, judgment. And we're not even sure what their order is. And the third book we looked at, which comes a century even after that, at least a century after that, is saying, Jikatila, who is saying, basically, I'm here to tell you uh, what those sefirot are. And they are, in fact, concentrated symbolic manifestations of the various names of God because the names of God is really all that's going on and the Sha'are Orah is a very at least at least two people from this from last week's session have told me independently that I have located the Sha'are Orah of Rav Yosef Jikatila and that they have plunged in and have been, to put it mildly, impressed. <laughs> Jikatila is amazing and he's basically got it. He's the trigger for the whole launch pad that is about to happen. Not the trigger for the launch pad, the trigger for the launch. I'm not doing this for dramatic effect. I actually was enjoying this tea and it's now on the other side of the pargod. And I'm also stalling because I need to uh, tell you uh, what I'm going to look at tonight because this is the point at which we are ready to launch into... We've only got a four-part course, so I have to choose the nexus points very carefully. And we're going to move probably a lot faster at some points in the development of thought and how Kabbalah becomes revealed than we did in the last session where we had a bit of time, even though we ran out of time, to look at a couple of centuries. That launch <laughs> is about to reveal that wave of revelation that is about to happen at the end of the 13th century in Spain is going to change the entirety of Jewish life and thought and culture and indeed fundamentally the perception of our, the nature of our relationship with the divine as a continuum in history and as a people. It changes everything. And we have already started to see the strands. Remember what I said at the beginning of last week? That these revelations come effectively as waves of synthesis. Of taking disparate strands of Jewish mystical thought and ideas and perceptions and welding them together to become the vessel for a new level of revelation. 
That, <laughs> that is the whole point at the end of the day of Torah. Torah, for those of you who have studied a little bit of Kabbalistic literature, would know that Torah, and of course, because those of you who've run out and bought your copy of Sha'are Orah would know that Jikatila has told you that Torah is Tiferet. It's on the central pillar of the Sfirot in the structural pattern that he gives you of the Sfirot that I did on the board last week. We'll no doubt have to do it again. And that has a direct connection obviously to Da'at. And Da'at is the divine consciousness coming into the world. <coughs> and Da'at comes into the world because it synthesizes the left and right polarities of divine creation, divine creativity, our creativity, if we channel it. That's Jikatila in a nutshell. But the shift that happens just around and after the time of Sha'are Ra is enormous and I'm going to be spending the bulk of what I'm going to talk about tonight of course on the Zohar. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really am. <laughs> I may not do a good job but I really am. You only have to spend five minutes inside any journey into Kabbalah and you will come across the existence of a thing called the Zohar. The first thing you should realize is that contemporary scholarship believes, not entirely, but the sharper points within it have come to the realization that the Zohar is not a book. It's been a book for around about the last four or five hundred years. There is a book called the Book of the Zohar ever since the first edition of it was printed in Mantua in 1558. But the Zohar is not so much a book as a phenomenon. Now I'm not going to go, because of the nature of what we're talking about here, I'm not going to go so much into many of the features of the Zohar such as the fact that it is, it's, uh, you know, and I'm thinking two particular aspects of any discussion of the Zohar, both of which are fascinating, but I'm not going into them right now. One of which, of course, is the attributional um, debate about the Zohar, exactly who wrote it, where did it come from. And the other aspect of the Zohar, of course, being the fact that it is written in Zoharic Aramaic which is a unique language. It is a form or maybe a literary dialect of Aramaic. But there's a whole discussion to be had as to why that is. We can go into it if people really need to, but I'm not what I'm focusing on here. What I'm focusing on here is the way that the Zohar unfolds, shifts in the revelation of divine ideas within the Jewish people. Now, one of the things I didn't talk about last night, not last night, last week, <laughs> when I looked at my notes, I realized that there was a fundamental point that I had not discussed. That is, that one of the things that the Bahir did, 
I talked about the Bahir, it's such a unique turning point. One of the things that the Bahir did was that it mapped what it considered to be the divine attributes into the patriarchs of, in other words, the Avot, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and of course, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, of the book of Bereshit, as signifiers of these divine attributes. That was quite a development. By the time you get to Sha'are Orah, by Jikatila, so that is already, that idea is already developed further, in the sense that, for example, Tiferet is a representation is represented by Jacob and they are both representational of essentially for, for Yosef Jikatili it's about the name of God and therefore the four letter tetragrammaton which is signified by all of these parallel symbols that he's going to give you but the Zohar and of course he has the structure of the Svirot as we now understand it. And if you recall, he's going from Malchut all the way up to Keter. But the Zohar... The Zohar constructs what is effectively a Midrashic exegesis that maps the entire Torah onto the Sfirot dynamically and that shows a kind of a shift that's already happening from the personal focus of Jikatila of Abu Lafya to a more cosmic focus and that's why the Zohar at many levels is really a poem thousands of pages long an ecstatic poem about the relationship between God and the world, God and the people of Israel. It's cosmic in nature and it is seeing the divine as invested in history. Not just in a figurative mythic way, which it also does, but in actuality. Every single figure in the Torah represents something in the world of the Sfirot. Every single verse of the Torah is Kabbalistically interpretable. Avraham is not a representation or a symbol of Chesed. Avraham is Chesed. What Avraham does and the verses that are used about Avraham and where he goes and what he does and all the aspects to do with the story of Avraham that gives us deeper and deeper insight into the nature of Chesed, the attribute, the Sphira of Chesed, which is the Sphira of expansion and, of course, of kindness, of goodness, of benevolence. The Torah for the Zohar is the cosmic blueprint. Istakel beoraita uvare alma. God looked in the Torah and created the world out of the Torah. Every single word, every single verse, every single word, every single letter, every single dot has cosmic importance and it is all interpretable. 
but the Zohar is doing much more than just that, but that's something we need to understand. Obviously, this great cosmic battle that's happening in the Zohar huh, is also, of course, very reflective of what's going on in the world at the time. And once again, we're not going there, although one should not ignore those factors. The great struggle between Islam and Christianity happening in Spain and in the Middle East, the end of the Crusades, the defeat of the Moors, the Christianization, the Reconquesta, basically, of Spain, all of this is in the background. There are also some other very, very strong strands of thought, of mystical, spiritual thought in the background that I'll touch upon in a moment as well. But the Zohar is doing more, which the Zohar synthesizes. But the Zohar is doing more in its unique contribution to the... It's, 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 a, it's, a comp, it's like the dam bursts are broken now with the Zohar. You've all seen the Zohar, yeah? You know how big it is? You've seen it? Put your hand up if you've ever seen the Zohar. Put your hand up if you've never seen a copy of the Zohar. Yeah, yeah. You, you remember... Um, anyone here ever know the late Rabbi Groner? Yes. Yeah? So Rabbi Groner used to have a saying, he says, I'm not going to imitate Rabbi Groner. But he used to have a saying that... Um, you should never sleep in a house where there isn't a copy of the Zohar. Now, I don't mean to spook anybody, but I'm just putting that out there, I'm just saying. <laughs> you know, it's a, I'm, I'm an extremely cheeky person. He was a great man, but when he passed away... Um, no, sorry, not when he passed away. When his late Rebertson passed away, another great human being, uh, and the children were sitting shiva, and I ran in the house, I, 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 well, I didn't run in the house, I went to say, you know, to be Menachem Avil, but as soon as I'd done that, I started rummaging through the bookcases looking for his copy of the Zohar, I, and I found one, and I found one, and I found one, just to, this is the Zohar, yeah, so you're going to be saying, oh, this is the Margoliot edition. You're going to be going, oh, okay, three volumes. Not so bad. Not even as big as Harry Potter. All right? <laughs> However, it's when you open it that you realize that when, you when you're looking at the Tsar, what you're actually looking at is text like that. Completely block, tiny text for a lot of pages. If you want, you can read the Zohar in English. And the best translation is, at the moment, is the Pritzker. It looks like this. Some of you would be familiar with the yellow volumes. Yep. Put your hand up if you've ever seen this before. Put your hand up if you've never seen this before. Okay, cool. There's a reason for standing here. Yep. It's this times 12. All right. Not an easy thing to acquire. You'd need to do it probably over time, but it is if you if you want to understand, if you want to read the Zohar, you're either going to do it in Aramaic or you're going to do it with Danny Matt. Yep, who wrote that translation? Um, or you can do it in Hebrew. There are a number of Hebrew translations, but Matt comes with a lot of notes, it's very useful. The Zohar does more. 
The Zohar is also interested to describe the process about how the cosmos came into being. The process of creation. And how that happens, and how creation is emanated from the infinite. And how that process of creation is intimately bound up with this very, very special relationship that the divine has with the Jewish people. And the two great, the two twin, in a sense, archetypical figures of the Zohar are Kudshabrichu, God in the form known as the Holy One, blessed be He, but that's in Aramaic, Kudshabrichu, and Shechinta. And Shechinta is obviously Aramaic, for the Shekhinah is the divine presence, which is represented in terms of the feminine. The Shechinta, the Shekhinah, is the tenth sphere of divine investment in creation. And she seeks constantly, through our help, to reunite. Malchut seeks to reunite with Tiferet in a vertical alignment. To become one with Tiferet. And Shechinta has two kind of levels. One is the purely transcendent spiritual cosmic level that is present in the world, the divine presence that is sometimes revealed to us. And then a very tangible spiritual entity in the world called Knesset Yisrael, who are the spiritual dimension of us, the physical. We are... The Jewish people, physical in the world, are the nukva, or the feminine, of the masculine aspect in relation to us. The whole world is worked out according to unions, whether horizontal or vertical. The primary binary in humanity is that of the male and the female. The perfection of that binary is union. And if union between man and woman on every level, but particularly the intimate level, is the highest possible unity attainable within human experience, then it is the ideal allegoric or metaphoric or symbolic vehicle for expressing the unity of God in the world. Our minds are not even capable of understanding the concept of one in relation to God. And you will start to realize that when you start to realize that how can God be one, infinite and nothing. Way beyond number way beyond the ability, so the, the highest possible way in which we can do it, but not only intellectually, it's the highest possible way because we are able 
to draw down that level of unity into our own life because the mitzvot of the Torah take on cosmic importance now. And the Zohar is also going to talk to you about a number of other things I won't go into right now. Might come back if we have some time. The Zohar is going to go into talking about this concept called the other side. The Sitra Akhra. Which is a parallel structure of the demonic. It starts to understand evil, of course, as an agency of God. The Zohar is also going to tell you about the soul. And the Zohar is going to introduce this idea, not introduce, but it's bringing together all of these strands. The Zohar is the text that's going to tell us that there are basically three levels to the soul. There's nefesh, which is your animus. That's the soul that walks around Carlisle Street, goes into Glicks on a Friday morning and abuses people. That's your nefesh. Then you've got ruach, which is a higher level of soul, which is everybody goes, oh, I went to the ruach, I went to the wedding. Was there a ruach? Yes, it was lovely. And that's a very base level of the concept of ruach, but ruach is a completely inspired um, divine connection. The level of ruach is revealed at those moments. Otherwise, you're walking around with your nefesh. The level of Ruach is revealed at those sorts of moments. Maybe also when learning Torah. And the level of Nishama, that's only revealed in the world on very special occasions or for very special people. However, the Zohar is also giving us a picture in relation to the soul, which is making pretty much the definitive call in a discussion that's been had already for quite some time in Jewish thought, even to the point of the Zohar, and it comes out fully behind the idea of reincarnation. Souls go through history, and basically the Zohar is saying you're going to be reincarnated three times. Once to fix your nefesh, once to fix your ruach, once to fix your neshama, and then you're out of here. There are many, many different permutations of that picture. The Zohar has a tripart system of the soul. Now, people are going to go, oh, well, well, they're nice ideas, and um, I guess if that's what the Zohar says, then that's what the Zohar says, and all right, fine. I'm not even scratching the surface here. First of all, you realize that the Zohar is just, to read it, is sublime. If you know any Hebrew, you can pick up the resonances of the Aramaic and it will explode your brain. If you don't know any Hebrew, that's also fine. Just read the Aramaic. But once you start to read the Aramaic, it comes to, it's so sublime, it's so poetic. Not just its language, but its contents and the way the ideas are delivered. So I, there's a literary quality to the Zohar that I'm not giving over when I talk about its ideas, but I want you to be aware of it. The Zohar became the foundational text or the writings of the Zohar became the foundational text of Jewish mysticism. And when I say the, and its language and its terms and its concept, and when I say the writings, it's because 
There's no single text called the Zohar, really. It's a collection of all sorts of textual units emerging from the same milieu. Whether that milieu was 2nd century Palestine or whether that milieu was 13th century Castile, there is a milieu of either one, uh, hardly likely just one person, but on a number of anywhere from one up to several, in a some sort of chabura, a collective, that study collective, that were producing these texts, and there are discrete units of the Zohar. There are some very famous parts. And I'll come on to that in a second, because it's something else. Of course, it's relevant to tomorrow night. No, tomorrow night. <laughs> there are a couple of intellectual currents going on in the world. I'll clarify everything. There are a couple of intellectual currents going on in the world at this time. And without going into depth, because we're not here to reveal the ideas of the Gentiles, but, because they get revealed anyway in Kabbalah, but Neoplatonism has been infiltrating Western and even Eastern thought for a long time. Neoplatonism is basically the idea that the divine and the corrupt world, pluralistic world that we live in, are bridged by a series of emanations. And with each emanation, the divine light becomes coarser and coarser until here in this world it's so thick that the divine is actually invisible. That's the classic Neoplatonic picture. And Neoplatonism doesn't just invade philosophy, it also invades Christianity and it invades Islam. And of course, it, inva it invades. It's, we open the door and welcome it in and sit it down and give it a piece of gefil not gefilte fish, not uh, in Spain, but it, it comes right into Judaism and we're very happy with Neoplatonism. Nothing in Neoplatonism that we can't handle. But the Zohar takes Neoplatonist ideas about emanation and it welds them with another thought stream that has been around in world culture for the last, by the time of the Zohar, for at least the last thousand years. And that, of course, is Gnosticism, which is the belief, really, at the end of the day, Gnosticism has many aspects, but at the end of the day, it constructs a duality, basically, and the human is at the center of a struggle between good and evil. The Bahir, which we looked at last week, is identified repeatedly as a Gnostic text, although it sublimates it under nominal rabbinic monotheism. The Zohar does exactly that. It takes Neoplatonism, Gnosticism and rabbinic monotheism and welds them together into a Midrash about the relationship between God and the Jewish people based on an understanding of the Sefirot that can be mystically contemplated. And the things that philosophy is worried, is worried about, for Jewish philosophy, which has been worried in Islamic philosophy, and even Christian philosophy, have completely shrunk into their own sphincters over the whole issue of anthropomorphism. And so philosophers are 
trying their best to show that the Torah is not anthropomorphic and the Kabbalists, well, you know, we're trying very hard to make sure they don't stay anthropomorphic and the Zohar goes in completely the opposite direction. The texts, the two or three texts that I'm just going to talk about for the next minute in relation to the Zohar are subtexts of the Zohar. One set of texts are called the Idras. And there's the Idra Rabbah and the Idra Zuta. Just to give you an idea about how beautiful Aramaic is, right? Large is Rabbah. Little is Zuta. It's just such an amazing language. The Idra Rabbah you'll find in Parashat Naso. Because the Zohar is divided up into the Parashiot by editors for hundreds of years now. And you'll find uh, the Idra Zuta in Parashat Ha'azinu. It is in the Idra Zuta that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the main head and revealer of the entire circle of the Zohar, is about to depart this world in ecstatic unity with the Divine. He's going to give a discourse in which it's going to be such a level of revelation that his soul is going to leave his body. And not just him, he's taking some of the students with him. And he warns them. If you sit here for the teaching I'm about to give, I'm going at the end of this and you're coming with me. And they go, okay, cool. That is in the Yidra Zutta. And the Idra Zuta, and particularly even more than the Idra Rabba, the Idra Zuta is a full-on mystical, symbolic revelation about the divine, about God, using the human form as the vehicle for that. It talks about the divine structure in great detail, showing how divine energy comes into the world. And it is, of course, in the setting of the Yidrasuta that Rabbi Shimon is talit, is gone. And we understand that day to have been Lagba Omer, which is tomorrow night. The whole concept of the fires and the Rashbi and the Miron, that's all described in the Yidrasuta. But don't read the Yidrasuta unless you're ready to go into the Yidrasuta. If you don't know what you're doing inside the Yidra Zuta, inside it will, it will fry you. So if you read it, read it as, read it as poetry, but it's, uh, it's pretty full on. And the other text that we need to be aware of, and I can see the time, and I, I, I will, I'm going to conclude the Zohar because there's two other things I want to talk about, two other texts. But we need just to talk, for example, a text that exemplifies everything I've been talking about is the very famous Sifra Ditzniyuta. By the way, the texts that I'm talking about using, remember I spoke last week, I'm going to use texts and books as the anchor for the revelation of ideas. So every book I'm talking about is not just another book. Yeah? These are the books without which really and any awareness of what's going on with these books contextually really yeah I will write them really 
is not on a path of, of uh, constructive Kabbalistic knowledge. We looked at the Zohar, I wrote the, I, I talked about the Idra Rabbah and the Idra Zuta. I mean, the Idra Rabbah itself, read the Idra Rabbah. I mean, it's, you know, Rabbi Shimon, how long are we going to sit around in the maintenance of one pillar? In other words, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a turning point within Kabbalistic thought about the nature of the Sfirot. But the Idrazuta is what we say, uh, well, is, 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 is the setting of tomorrow. And it's, it's, it's even more anthropomorphic. But the one I'm going to talk about for a minute is called Sifra. These are all subtexts of the Zohar. Okay? The Sifra Dutzniyuta. And you'll find that in Parashat Truma. And it's five short paragraphs. It's like six pages long. And it is the absolute essence of everything. One of the most famous, famous, famous Kabbalistic texts, later translated into Latin, around the time of the Enlightenment, was read by Leibniz, by Newton. The Sifriditz Newta was regarded as the ultimate Zoharic text to uncode. It's a very difficult text to understand. Obviously, the greatest Kabbalists that we've had have written on it, the Ari and so on, but it's very difficult. It's a complete condensment of Kabbalistic knowledge in five short chapters. But its basic idea is that the... It's called a book of balance. That everything is about balance. That the cosmos is the result of a process of creation, destruction, and renewal. The Sifra Ditzniyuta talks very mystically about some primordial kings that died. There's a reason I'm telling you all this. The primordial kings died and their weapons were not found. Now, <laughs> people reading that for hundreds of years going, oh, that sounds very interesting. I have no idea what he's talking about. Now, to read it this, obviously, we're well on the other side of the ex explosion in Kabbalistic revelation that happened in the 16th century. We're still back at the 13th century. So for us, this is extremely mystical. But if we are gaining anything from an understanding of Sifra Ditzniyuta, we can understand this process of creation, destruction and renewal. We can understand that renewal or repair happens when balance is restored. The Sifra Ditzniyuta gives us an understanding that there is Vert, there is needs a need for balance between the higher on a vertical axis between the higher and the lower Adamic forms. Obviously, <laughs> I'm going, what? There's nothing called uh, an Ad obviously, there's a spiritualized Adamic form of the Sfirot. The representation of the essence of divine energy and governance coming into the world. 
but the Sifra Ditznyut is revealing an even higher level of Adamic form above that, that everything is starting to align with. And of course, on the vertical, on a horizontal, it's on a vertical, but on a horizontal level, unity is affected, of course, by male and female, the primary binary of humanity. So, and of course, <laughs> the Sifra Ditznyut is going to go and tell you the way that divine energy flows through the beard of the primordial man and so on, and it gets heavily anthropomorphic. These are important texts, and these are starting to inform and develop the revelation of the divine through Kabbalistic literature. And then, and then, where's the squishy? I'll use a tissue. You can see how difficult it is for me to bring the Zohar down in terms of the revelation of its ideas, but it is an absolute quantum leap from what was going on before. And of course, the Zohar is set in this idyllic environment with these rabbis are wandering around the land of Israel in the second century, these Tanaim, these famous sages, meeting each other, discussing secrets, giving each other mysteries, the Zohar is an unbeatable literary experience if you want to get into it. But it is not one you ever complete. You're in it for a long time. And then there's another text I want to talk about, and I'm looking at the clock, so I'm aware. There's another text I want to talk about, which is really difficult to explain unless we have already got some context on the Zohar. Because this is going to be... <laughs> It is, not it's going to be, it is an extremely significant link in the chain of revelation where we arrive at Kabbalistic concepts as we understand them today. And that is that there is a part of the Zoharic literature which is called Tikuneha Zohar. Now the word tikkunim is virtually impossible to translate. So, oh I know, oh I know. Some of you are sitting there going, oh that's not true David. I know what tikkun means. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm here to tell you that the word tikkun is impossible to translate in that context. I know, I've tried. Maybe, maybe, maybe the closest word in English that I have found to the word tikkunim is constructs. Danny Matt, the chief editor and translator of the entire Pritzker Zohar, <laughs> translates tikkunim every, differently every time he sees it and once sent me an email containing approximately 50 different possible English equivalents for the word. It's very difficult to translate. So I call it the Tikkunim of the Zohar. And what the Tikkunim of the Zohar are, they are discussions that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is having. Anyone, anyone read James Joyce? Yeah, put your hand up if you read Joyce. Oh, for real? Yeah, so, well, this will be lost on you, but if the Zohar is Ulysses, then Tikkun Zohar is Finnegan's Wake. It's like, it's like 
it's it, it's like someone read the Zohar and then took ten tabs of acid and just started talking. The it emerges. We're not entirely sure that the conversations that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is having are actually before or after he was ecstatic from the world. We're not sure. And it's visited by all sorts of holy souls. Elijah the prophet and others come in and out and make astonishing revelations. Astonishing revelations that move it to become the bridge that it's going to become between the Zohar and what's going to follow. The Tikkunim is also, the author of the Tikkunim seems to be very, very close in alignment. If it's not identical, identically the same person, it's someone very close to the worldview of the sections of the Zohar that you would have heard of called the Raya Mehemna. Who's heard of the Raya Mehemna? So the Raya Mehemna, the faithful shepherd texts, which are actually inserted inside the Zohar itself, unlike Tikkunah Zohar, which is its own volume. So it's not as big as the Zohar, but it's still this block text here, but it's only about 150 folios. And it's probably the same, it's similar to the author of the Raya Mehemna. And in fact, it was printed just before the Zohar. So it's, at, it's, it's, it's as foundational to what's going forward as the Zohar. And I'm going to talk about it for two minutes. Because the Tikkunim is the book that really introduces this idea. It's not just the biblical figures that can represent aspects of the divine. When it comes to the Shekhinah, when it comes to the divine presence, when it comes to the Sefirah of Malchut, the feminine embedded and exiled in the world, everything in the world is a representation of the divine. Everything, everything you look at, everything you encounter is a representation of the Shekhinah. The Tikkun Zohar is teaching you to take the methodology of the Zohar and apply it to your actual reality. The Tikkun Zohar also reveals this idea that there are in fact four dimensions to reality, four broad domains, four worlds. This one, which it calls the world of Asiya, which is the world of doing, of action, of faction, if you like, it's a nice cute translation of it, but the world of Asiya, the world of making. Vibrating here, but above us at a spiritual level, is the world of formation, the world of Yitzira. It's an angelic realm. Above that is the world of creation. The world, of course, it is. Yes, no, it is. It is, it is. Okay, I know, I know why you did that. I know why you did that. Okay. The Tikkun Zohar doesn't actually call them worlds, it calls them domains. The domain of creation is the, is, is, is the domain of the holy throne, the Merkava, the chariot, the throne, that the vision of Ezekiel, he's looking at the world, the, the realm of the Chayot. 
and above that is the realm of Atzilut, the realm of emanation. And emanation and the divine are already incomplete. Uh, the, the world of emanation is part of the, of, the, of the essential divine. Each of these domains or worlds has their own paradigm of Sfirot and each is governed by an Adamic form. There is an Adam of Asiyah, there is an Adam of Yitzirah, there is an Adam of Briah, and there is an Adam of Asiyah. The idea of the four worlds really takes its rise from the Tikkunim. But if the Tikkunim is, seems to be saying, and once again, and I'm, 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 I don't wanna, I'm, I'm gonna make sure I don't run out of time. I, I, I wanted to talk about this because the Tikkunim has been uh, coming further and further into consciousness in the last few years. I know at least three people who've written PhDs on the Tikkunim just in the last few years. And everybody seems to have a theory, even going back uh, the last 20 or 30 years of scholarship on the Tikkunim, people seem to be expressing different theories about what it's about, what it's really trying to say. But to me, it seemed, and I've spent a bit of time with the Tikkunim, to me, it seems to be pretty much about one thing, and that is the theme of exile. The Shekhinah is in exile, meaning the concept of God is in exile, meaning exile is a state of consciousness. And Begaluta Kulahon Shatyan, says the Tikkunim, in exile, everyone is stupid. No one can see the divine reality right in front of them. Of course, the Shekhinah is in exile with us. The Jewish people are the ultimate living, testamental symbol, cosmic symbol of the state of the Shekhinah. That is what we are. We are the Shekhinah, in a sense, wandering around looking for a home. And the Tikkunim brings us also a very startling idea about the Messiah and about redemption. Everything in the Tikkunim is this full-on, relentless, ecstatic mode of revelation. You have to realize that. Uh, oh, and those of you who want to read it in English translation, there isn't an English translation of the Tikkunim. But there will be. There will be. Next year it will be, it will be uh, published and online and so on. So... I'm going to talk about this later in the year because um, in my silliness I told Kofil Shul that I would give a four-part series on the messianic idea in Jewish history. And obviously uh, there is a shift happening in the Tikkunim. While everybody else is running around talking about how the Messiah is really a manifestation of an, an ethno kind of cosmic projection manifestation of which biblical figure? David. The Tikkunim is telling you that in fact, the Tikkunim is not even telling you anything about David, it doesn't really discuss David Amelech at all in its messianic ecstasy. And this has a big effect on various strands in later Jewish mysticism, is that the Mashiach for the Tikkunim is Moshe. Because Moses, Moshe, is the level of Da'at 
He is the level that brings consciousness. It is the one who gives the new Torah. Each of the domains, by the way, of Asiyah, Yitziyah, Briah, Atzilur has its own Torah. Our Torah at the moment is the Torah that we have, but there is a whole new level at which it can be revealed. The Tikkunim is completely obsessed with the rise of the feminine. Like the Bahir, it is a very, in a way, non-linear text. Structured loosely around 70 discourses, all about the first words of the Torah, Bereshit. In fact, the first word, Bereshit. 70 mystical discourses, each of which takes the word Bereshit and then goes off in an incredible direction. So I urge you, if you get a chance, if you can understand it in the original now, do that. Have a look at some point. Um, and if you can get it in translation when it comes out, I think it's going to be something that you will find fascinating to look at. It's hard for me to explain more about its literary qualities. There is a custom of, by the way, to read a section of Tikkun Ezoar from Rosh Chodesh Elul to Yom Kippur. Um, and those who do that can tell me um, what they discover. Now, I've got one minute left and I want to talk about just one more book that's really going on a tangent here, but it's such an interesting and fascinating uh, book that, um, uh, and, and, and set of ideas that I just want to spend one minute talking about it. And that is uh, that around about the time of the Tikkunim, and the Tikkunim is very much embedded in the universe of the Zohar. I mean, some people think that the Tikkunim was written through techniques of automatic writing. One of the texts of the Tikkunim, one of the texts of the Tikkunim is a famous text which ended up in the Siddur, not ended up, but found its way into the Siddur, the liturgy of Eastern and mystical communities, and that, of course, is the famous essay Patach Eliyahu, which is actually the second introduction of Tikkun Ezoar, and it's given in what I call the Kabbalistic Sufic voice of Tikkun Ezoar, because it is fully and completely transcendent. Its language is transcendent, its conception of God is transcendent. It's the exact opposite of much of the anthropomorphism of the Idris and the Sifredits Niuta, and even anthropomorphism that finds its way into the Tikkunim. But the Patach Eliyahu essay is uh, astonishing, and uh, Louis Jacobs actually argued that Patach Eliyahu is there in to kind of reserve against the dangers of anthropomorphic thinking. Kabbalists are very, very worried about people picking up the Zohar and misunderstanding it. But the book um, I'm just going to talk about now is a book called Sefer Hatmuna. Sefer Hatmuna. Who with a bit of Hebrew could translate for me what is the meaning of Sefer Hatmuna? The, the book of the The book of the picture. The book of the picture. Now, it's telling you many, 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 many things. The Sefer Atmuna, many things. It's got phenomenal uh, discourses on the relationship between the Hebrew letters and the Sfirot that they are intimately bound up with. And there's a lot to be said there. Gives us a whole theory of vision, of mystical vision and what it is and what you're actually perceiving through Kabbalistic ideas and Kabbalistic consciousness. But the big idea of Sefer Atmunah that everybody talks about is this incredible idea. And I'm going to finish with this. This incredible idea that uh, 
we talk in the Zohar about how the divine is invested in history. Seferat Munah is very concerned with how the divine is invested in time. Time is cyclic. Now we know the big idea that came out, especially from the school of the Ramban and so on, and you can see that in his commentary on, 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 on the book of Genesis, that each of the thousand years since creation has represented one of the seven lowest sefirot. The seven lowest sefirot are their own grouping. We now differentiate the three higher ones from the seven lower ones. By the time you get to the Zohar, there are all sorts of different configurations about how the sefirot are broken up. But everybody acknowledges that time is dominated by the number seven. We have seven days of the week. We have seven years in a Shemitah. Yeah? And we have seven Shemitot in a Yovel. And the Seferat Munah tells us that, of course, the idea out of the, uh, that I was talking about, that you find in the Ramban, is the idea that each thousand years represents one of those Sefirot. Yep. That's why we're told that by the year 6,000, by the time we get to Malchut, we must have arrived at our Messianic period. But the Seferat Munah tells you that that Messianic period that you were all waiting for, that's just the Messianic period of this Shemitah. There are seven cycles of this 7,000. And which sphera are we currently cycling through? So we're obviously in Yesod, and we're coming to the end of Yesod within this cycle, the year 5781, we're coming towards the year 6,000. But of the Uber cycle, which of the sphirot are we in? And I'll tell you, because when, I, when, you, when you read the Sefer of Tumunay and he tells you, it sends a chill through you. We're in Gvurah. That is why our Torah is a Torah of Din. The Torah of the cycle, 7,000 year cycle before us, had a Torah of Chesed. We have a Torah of Din. Our Messianic period will be a Messianic period of Din of Gvura. It'll be awesome. It'll be awesome. Obviously, it'll be nice to be around for the Messianic period of Tiferet and so on and so on until you get the big one and then possibly there's a cycle. So this idea became kind of somehow infused in Jewish thought as well. The idea that, that, that there is a cosmic cycle. And of course, the Sefer Atmona is telling you that there are some special souls that cycle through each, go through each cycle and are incarnated through to each cycle to help precipitate the messianic period of each cycle, the seventh millennium of each 7,000 year cycle, so you have a complete reflection of the Shabbat. The reality is that most Kabbalists, probably the Zohar will tell you, that our 7,000 year cycle is happening between the words Tov and Ma'od, at the end of Friday's description of the sixth day in the Torah, in the first chapter of Bereshit, just before you get to Vayichulu HaShemayi Ba'aretz. So God's making Kiddush already. Yeah, so it's Shabbat, which means everything gets complete. So we get created, that's Tov. And then Ma'od is the Tikkun of this 7,000 years, which of course Ma'od is the letters of Adam. So we have to take the Mem from the beginning and put it at the end to become Adam. It's a whole Kabbalistic splee going on there, but it's an interesting question you ask. So there are time frames, but I don't want to say who the Messiah of the last period. I don't. I have to confess, I don't remember. I, I don't. I mean, maybe we were there. I don't exactly remember who it was. I'm pretty sure it wasn't me.
So, I think I would have remembered that. Sorry? Is this idea consistent with other capitalistic works, the seven by seven? Oh, you see, that's a good question. See, that's a good question. The question was, did every, or did all capitalistic thinkers run with that idea about the seven the cycles of 7,000 years? And some did, but the Ari did not. And we're going to be talking about, obviously, talking about the Ari next week. Please, God, and uh, we can really only focus on the shifts that are happening. So the main thing I wanted us to realize tonight was the way that the Zohar completely explodes open the field of revelation and, in fact, gives us many of the concepts that we think are absolutely fundamental, foundational to Kabbalah itself. Uh, the idea that there are souls of di with different levels, the idea of Gilgul reincarnation, the idea of uh, the four worlds, the idea of Adamic form above Adamic form, all of these ideas are very important. And of course, <laughs> people are reading the Zohar for nearly 300 years and no one's really, really knowing what's going on, especially a book like Sifra Ditsniyuta. And then obviously next week, the Ari is going to come along and once we understand the context of that then his own teachings will make a lot more sense and I hope that I can see some of you for that. I look forward to it. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts or to learn more about David's next classes and projects visit davidsolomon.online You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you.